Well, take out your Bibles and remain standing as you do so. Let me have you turn to Mark's Gospel this morning once again and to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. We'll read this morning verses 11. We'll start in verse 11 and read through verse uh, 25. We'll be looking particularly at verses 12 through 21 this morning. But let's read beginning in verse 11 of chapter 11 of the gospel according to Mark. This is God's word to us. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those men that you, by your Spirit, have moved upon to record these things in such a way, such under such supervision by you that what we have is your very breathed out word to us. We rejoice in this great gift that we have. And as we look into this portion of Scripture this morning, this portion of the the work of the ministry of our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless us as we hear. We pray that you would bless he who speaks and, and us as we hear. And Father, would you... Instruct us, edify us, Lord, convict us where that is necessary, Father, and in all things, would you glorify your name. We ask this for the sake of our Savior, who is the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated now. Keep your Bibles out, of course. So as I read that, did you notice it? Do you find yourself strangely hungry after reading our passage? If so, 
it could be because we are once again presented with one of Mark's textual sandwiches where he begins a story, interrupts that story to tell a different story, and then goes back to the first story. We've come across these at various points and talked about them uh, along our study of this gospel. And here's another one. We haven't seen one for a while. Um, The story of the fig tree is the bread, and the clearing, the cleansing of the temple is the filling. But there's also something else interesting about this passage this morning. In, in Jesus' cursing of the fig tree here, we really have what seems to be kind of a, a one-off in the ministry of Jesus. A miracle here that has caused no little consternation among scholars and among Christians, run-of-the-mill Christians uh, as well, because Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is the first miracle, the only miracle, that involves and is purely a destructive miracle. And it's caused people to view it quite negatively and to not know quite what to do with it. Why does Jesus kind of go off on this defenseless plant and curse it. It doesn't seem to be something that Jesus would do. What is going on here? Why is Jesus so mad at at this plant? What did it do except act like a fig tree? Well, we're going to see this morning that there's a very good answer to that question. And we will see the relationship of the, the bread in this sandwich to the filling of this sandwich. But first, to sort of prepare us for that, a, a quick run of some biblical history for us. God, in the early chapters of the Bible, back in the book of Genesis, called a man named Abram. He later renamed him Abraham called Abram out of his home country, out of his idolatry that he was living in, and called him to be a follower of God and and made a covenant with him, promising him that God would be his God and that God's people, or that Abram's people, would be God's people. And that people, those people, came to be called Israel. And God chose Israel, that nation, those people. God chose them as his own special, uh, set-apart people, his people. And it was to them, to the Jews in the Old Testament, that God gave the grace of adoption. To them, he would reveal his glory. To them, he would make covenants. He would give his law. He would give the privilege of proper worship of the one true God to them. To them, God would give great and precious promises of of blessing into eternity. And he promised that through them, one would come. His son would come. His own glorious son would come into the world As Paul says to them, through the flesh was the Christ, the one God over all, blessed forever. It was to them that God, 
the I am, Yahweh, Jehovah, that he would reveal his power and his mercy and his righteousness and his justice. Of all the places on this world that God created, God's dwelling place on earth, the place where God would meet with man and where he was to be worshipped formally by man was established by God and it was established in Israel. The temple. Before that, the tabernacle. The house of God. The covenant was with them. The covenant promises were made with them. His name was upon this people. They were known as the people of Yahweh. And he promised them that if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. And these people, God's people, started with good intentions. When God gave his covenant law uh, through the mediator of that covenant, Moses, when he gave that law to them and when Moses read all of the law to the people, their response was, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. All that he's spoken will do it. And we will be obedient. Well, you all know that they didn't and they weren't. But God had made provision for that through the sacrifices. But the people continued to sin with a high hand. They continued to sin and walked farther and farther from God, forsook his law, forsook his worship, forsook his provision and even worshipped other gods. They, they still remembered that God had promised to be with them, but they forgot that he had said to them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that if they did not obey him, if they did not serve him and him alone, that they would suffer the curse of the covenant. The curses which were a part of the covenant. They would be cursed in the city and cursed in the field. That they would be cursed in regard to their food and their livestock and their children. That they would fall before their enemies and be taken away even and be forced to serve other kings and other gods. But they continued. They increased in their disobedience. And so God, because of his love for them, he sent men to to warn them, the prophets. These men who were God's covenant prosecutors. He sent them to the people. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, and still they wouldn't listen. But they hardened their hearts against God. And finally, All the things that the Lord warned came upon them. The nation was divided. The northern kingdom was taken away by the Assyrians and were to a large degree lost to the nations. Then the southern kingdom, Judah, faced a similar fate. And again, God warned them. 
But the people thought that they would be safe. After all, they were God's people. They were the covenant people of God. They had the covenant. And they had the temple. God lives here with us. There's his house. What could go wrong? Well, God warned them some more. In Jeremiah 7, God warned them and said, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And these are the deceptive words he told them not to trust in. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. But the people ignored God's warnings, and the nation fell. God's people were taken by the Babylonians. And perhaps worse yet, the temple of God that they had so trusted in was destroyed. But God was gracious. And after a time, he allowed them to come back into the land and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple of God. Well, has anything changed as we come to Mark chapter 11? Had God's people learned their lesson? At the end of last week's passage in verse 11 that we read this morning, after entering Jerusalem to to shouts of Hosanna, blessed be the son of David, the Messiah, after Jesus entered, we saw him go where? To the temple. And Mark said that he looked around. He looked around at everything. And he saw his answer. And so we come to this passage this morning. In this passage, we see that Jesus curses a fruitless fig tree. We'll see that he cleanses a tainted temple. And finally, we'll look at the witness of a withered fig tree. First, Mark tells us that on the following day, that is the day after Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem, he says, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Remember, we mentioned this uh, at the end of last week's message that Jesus was staying outside of Jerusalem uh, in, in Bethany. They were spending the, the days in Jerusalem, but the nights uh, during this week, they will go back out to Bethany and stay there. Um, this was the time of the Passover, remember. And during this time, the population of Jerusalem would swell to twice its normal uh, number. And so it was very busy, and it's sort of at this Toward the end here of Jesus' life, it's the same as it was at the beginning of Jesus' life, and there's no room for them at the end. And so Jesus and his disciples, as many pilgrims would during this time, would stay outside of town. Jesus probably staying, as he stayed in Bethany, probably there at the home of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But then in the morning, as they come into town, Mark notes here that Jesus was hungry. Another one of those small but critical reminders that Jesus was not just fully God, but he was fully man as well. He grew tired, and so he went out outside of the city to rest. And when he rose, he was hungry. 
And so as they come down the Mount of Olives, again, we're, we're told that Jesus saw a fig tree in the distance. And, and Mark tells us that this fig tree was in leaf. That is, that there were leaves growing on it. And seeing this fig tree, Mark says that he went to see if he could find anything on it. Well, there's Jesus' humanity again. You know, sometimes we see Jesus um, demonstrating the, the omniscience that belonged to his divine nature. Matthew 12, 25 says, he knew their thoughts. Uh, or he knew when and where to have the disciples let down their, their fishing nets in order to catch a, a catch of fish that was so large that it threatened to sink the boat. But at other times... He demonstrated, Jesus did the, the limitations of, of knowledge according to his human nature. As when he didn't know who touched him in a crowd. Remember, he turned around and said, who touched me? Um, Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom. And we learn that Jesus said that he himself, the Son of Man, does not know the day or the hour of his own return. And so here is the latter. When Jesus is, is, does not know, he's demonstrating the limitations of his human knowledge. The limited human knowledge of Jesus could walk up to this fig tree not knowing what he would find. Would there be anything on it? But he expected to. He expected to find figs. Now there are a couple of explanations for this. Uh, one and they're, they're very similar. One is that fig trees produce small, immature, unripe, but still edible figs early in the season. At the same time, sometimes even before their leaves um, come out on the plant, they can, they can produce these, these little figs, these unripe figs. And so even though it was not the season for figs, as Mark tells us, the, the full season for the full, uh, fully grown fruit, uh, which will happen not until sometime between August and October, um, so though not technically the season for them, the leaves on the tree give Jesus a clue and give to him some hope that there'd be some fruit on there for him. But upon arriving and... Looking around, Jesus learns that there are no figs on the tree, no fruit, only, only the show of the leaves, only the promise. There is the fig tree here promised much, but delivered nothing. And so, with the disciples around, Jesus takes advantage of this situation this teachable moment, if you will, and he speaks to the tree and he says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And that's it. By the way, this is the last miraculous act performed by Jesus before his resurrection. And as we mentioned, this is a unique one because it's an act of, of destruction, a curse on the tree. And Mark makes note of it here that the disciples heard it. And they filed it away. So was Jesus mad at the tree so that he cursed it? Well, the simple answer is no. 
In fact, the explanation of what Jesus was doing here with the, this fig tree and the cursing of this fig tree, the explanation is just up the hill from where they're at, where Jesus and his disciples come next, to the temple of the Lord, the house of God, the house of prayer. And so we see that secondly. We see Jesus cleanses a tainted temple. This is the middle of the sandwich. Verse verse 15 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, just as he had done the night before. The fig tree apparently was located outside of the city, and Jesus and his disciples now come into the city. And as he had on the night before, he entered the temple. Now, the word that's used there for temple is a a generic word that speaks really of the the temple area. In all likelihood, Jesus went no farther on this trip into the temple, no farther than the court of the Gentiles, as it was called. The temple, originally built by King Solomon after the death of David, uh, that temple that Solomon built, wonderful, beautiful, glorious temple, had been destroyed, as I mentioned, by the Babylonians. It had then been rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah. Later, it had been plundered and desecrated in the time between the Old and the New Testaments by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. Then, just three years after that, it was uh, retaken and it was restored and it was rededicated uh, to God under Judas Maccabeus. We mentioned him last week. Probably mention him more in the last couple weeks than we will for the rest of the year. Uh, It was robbed then, later plundered in 54 B.C. And then finally it was taken on as a project by King Herod, Herod the Great. In 19 B.C., King Herod, who, who wanted in many ways to make a name for himself by these huge building projects that he did. Uh, he took it on. And Herod's renovation and expansion of, of the temple there in Jerusalem was so, uh, so thorough, so, um, so extensive that it was basically a new temple. And the beauty of this temple, which is often referred to as Herod's temple, was pretty much to us unimaginable. Polished white marble with gold everywhere. Beautiful colored fabrics. Just a a wonderful place. Herod began it in, in 19 B.C., but it really wasn't completed until 64 A.D., which, which ha- if you know your history, this, it has the sad postscript that this was just six years before Titus and the Roman army raised it to the ground, with literally not one stone being left on top of another of the temple proper, so that all that was left where the temple once stood was a small portion of the wall that surrounded it, what today is referred to as the Wailing Wall. During the time of Jesus, though, it was beautiful, awe-inspiring, beautiful beyond description. As part of the layout of this, of this temple, there were four court areas, four uh, areas 
open areas for standing and praying and worshiping on the temple grounds. And the, the largest, the outermost, was known as the Court of the Gentiles, a very large open area. This was the only area of the temple that was accessible to Gentiles. This was as far as they could go. In fact, there was a wall that separated it from the inner part of the temple area that basically said, if you cross this this wall and come in here, you're responsible for the consequences that you're going to face. So this area here is, is the largest of the area. One had to go through the court of the Gentiles to reach the other courts, the... Um, the court of the women, and then on uh, into the, the inner courts. And it's here, the court of the Gentiles, that Jesus has come this day into this magnificent temple. Only what he saw was not magnificent. It wasn't sacred. It wasn't holy any longer. What he saw was a market. A marketplace, a farmer's market within the temple grounds, in the court of the Gentiles, within the precincts of the temple. The one whose temple this is, whose honor it is to uphold, the place from which he is to be worshipped and from which he is to be beseeched in prayer on behalf of the people has been turned by those people into a market. And Jesus, righteously, as the zeal for God's house rises up in him, he takes action. And Mark tells us here of three actions that he took. The first is, it says, that he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So first he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. You know, as the festival of Passover is, is, is gearing up here in Jerusalem, getting underway, people are coming from far distances to come to Jerusalem. And some of those who had traveled would decide that it was too cumbersome to bring their own animals with them on, on this trip. Uh, the animals that they would use for sacrifices, or perhaps they thought that it was too risky because um, as you look at the Old Testament regulations in regard to animals for worship, they had to be just so. And they, they would be inspected before they could be used for sacrifices, and the people thought, well, I don't want to bring uh, this animal with me all this way only to get up here and find out that it's not appropriate, not good, not qualified for a sacrifice. So what they would do, and what the merchants were only happy to accommodate, is that they would sell, these merchants would sell previously approved animals. There, there was a, um, they were in cahoots with the, the priests and those who ran the temple. Um, I'm sure they got a kickback on it. But they would sell appropriate, pre-approved animals for sacrifice. And they were only happy, uh, too happy to provide those animals for sale. It's interesting here that Jesus drives out both those who sold and those who bought. Both sides of this are, are not uh, a, a good uh, situation. Both share in the guilt of desecrating the temple by turning it into a market. That's not what it's for. 
The second thing that he, that he did was he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Another cost of celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem was the payment of a temple tax. That was uh, partly done by Herod in order to recoup some of the money that, that was being spent to build this temple out. And, of course, this tax had to be paid with Jewish currency. And many came from areas where they didn't have the appropriate coinage. Enter, then, the money changers, who would and did, for a small fee, uh, would exchange the people's non-Jewish money into Jewish funds. Again, for a small to large fee. Third, we read in verse 16 that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's kind of an odd one. Things were so bad here in the temple, and the reverence for the house of God had evaporated so, so thoroughly, so completely, that those who policed the temple grounds were allowing the court of the Gentiles, at least, to be used as a shortcut for carrying things across the temple mount to other parts of the city. Jesus puts an end to that as well. He would not allow anyone to do that. Now, at least he puts an end to this for today. If you think of the, the size of the, the court of the Gentiles and how many uh, tables, cages, uh, booths, if you will, uh, would have been set up. Jesus, as one man, was not able to clear the temple, but he made a showing. He made it clear what he was doing. But it was certainly a temporary fix. He did that for today. No doubt, a temporary disruption, and by the next day, by the next morning, all of the tables, all of the cages, all of the cash boxes would be back in place. And notice this. Look at verse 15. He says, They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. See, the problem here is not so much that they were providing these services, uh, which were needed. If people didn't bring their, their animals, they needed to have appropriate animals for the sacrifices. Uh, in fact, even the reference there to those who sold pigeons, those would be sacrifices for the poorest of people. They were being provided to. So it's not so much that that's happening. It's not even so much here that they were making profit on this. The point was, and the problem was, that they were doing it in the temple. Jesus wouldn't have, have made this scene if they'd have been doing it out in the streets. But they were doing it in the temple of God. And Jesus didn't come in and just start wailing on them and, and making a mess and causing a, a ruckus to no purpose. Look at verse 17. It tells us that he was teaching them while he was doing it. Have you ever noticed that in the midst of the most disruptive and chaotic times of our lives that God is teaching us? We're not always learning, but God is teaching us. In fact, we might even say that it is in those times especially that he teaches us. Times like that when he is 
when he's turning over the tables of our lives and just making a mess of all of our carefully laid out plans. You know, because then he has the benefit of having our attention, right? That's the time that our prayer life ramps up. And that's something as well that we need to keep in mind. We can't always control the things that happen in our lives, but we can control how we react to them and we can choose to learn the lessons that God is teaching us or we cannot. Let's choose to learn those lessons that the Lord teaches us. But here he is teaching those in the temple what has him so upset. And it's in verse 17. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? He is saying, You have misused the house of God. You have defiled the house of God by what you're doing. And he calls to witness here the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 56-7, in a passage about the blessings of those who had returned from exile, the, the temple had been destroyed and they'd been taken away, and then they had come back. He says that to even then the, the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. He says, Isaiah 56, 7, he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The holy mountain is a reference to the temple. And he calls it here a house of prayer to the foreigners who join themselves as well. That's the purpose. That's the intent that the house of God was to be called a house of prayer and not just a house of prayer for the Jewish people, but, as verse 17 here says, a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus says this even as he stands in the court of the Gentiles. But you have ignored all of that. You have turned what is to be a house of prayer for all people, he says, into a den of robbers. That's a powerful phrase because it comes from a specific reference. It comes from Jeremiah 7. And this really is a key to the whole passage. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is prophesying. He is warning now God's people and as he begins there in Jeremiah 7, notice that it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So this proclamation that's coming from Jeremiah comes from him standing in the temple. And this is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. We talked about, mentioned this earlier. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another... If you do not oppress the sojourner, fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, 
Then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now... Because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Jesus is seeing here this false trust in the bare existence of the temple, seeing it as a a lucky charm. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, that, that repetition. And he says, Jesus says to them, it's all show. And it's a bad show. And the Lord, whose temple it is, will not allow it any longer. And verse 18 says that the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus was saying and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. A bold move Jesus has made to come into the temple and to condemn what he saw there. And to do so so audaciously. And Just looking forward, Jesus, having entered Jerusalem to the acclaim of the people, is going to spend the rest of this week, until towards the end of the week, saying and doing things that is just going to make them angrier and angrier and will eventually bring down the wrath of the Jews on him. This is the first. Now, in verses 19 through 21, Mark says this. He says, when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. That's where we're going to stop for today. The the witness of the withering of the withered fig tree. So back to Bethany for the night. And on the way back into Jerusalem the next day, They pass by this spot on the road and they see this tree, this fig tree that Jesus had cursed last night or yesterday afternoon and sees that it is dead and dried, Mark says, to its roots. I have no green thumb at all, but I couldn't even kill a plant that thoroughly, that quickly. It is a supernatural thing. It is a miracle that a plant could go from having leaves on it to being dried up from the root overnight. So let's return to the question that we asked earlier. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? 
Was he mad at it because he found no figs on it? No. Rather, Jesus here is acting like a prophet. Even as he is a prophet. He is our chief prophet. He is that prophet like Moses that God was going to send and has. And the prophets were interesting people. And at times they did interesting things. All according to the command of God, of course. Um, But at times they were told to give prophecies in strange ways. Strange to us at least. uh, Through object lessons. Using pictures drawn with real life items. Jeremiah is probably the best example. Uh, with, with an almond branch, with a, a boiling pot that is tilted away from the north, with some potter's clay, with a, a livestock yoke, which he wore on himself, a book that has a rock tied to it and is thrown in the river to sink, and others. And other prophets did the same thing with these object lessons. Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And here... Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the fig tree is the temple. All leaves, all show, all pretense, but no fruit. A lying shadow of what it should be. By the way, in in the Old Testament, Hosea 9 and Jeremiah 8 and Jeremiah 24, the fig tree is a picture of Israel. And in Luke 13, in the New Testament, Jesus tells a parable. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And the way that's structured in the original language is the expectation is that nothing's going to get any better. Here in Mark 11, that is pictured. And actually, when Jesus goes into the temple here, he is not cleansing it. We use use that term. In fact, it's in the sermon title. But he's not cleansing it. He's not restoring it. He is announcing its end. The time of the temple is over. Because now, as John says, the Lord has himself come to dwell among his people. Not in a building, but in a person. The person of Jesus Christ. And as that progresses, the Holy Spirit will be sent and will dwell in each one of us so that Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, indwelt by God? And so Jesus here in this passage, by two vastly different symbolic acts, cursing the fig tree, cleansing the temple, is doing the same thing. He's teaching the same lesson. And that lesson is the soon coming downfall of Israel and the destruction of the temple, which will take place within the matter of a generation from when Jesus speaks here. Not that God is done dealing with the Jews, but that the Jewish nation 
as the outward manifestation of the church of God was to be under the new covenant no longer largely the exclusive recipient of those promises. But now, with the coming of Christ, Jew and Gentile equally are called, equally are welcomed as the gospel goes to all nations. Someone asked me last week, What happened that caused the people to turn on Jesus? Well, here's part of it. This is the beginning of it. Malachi had prophesied that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Well, and he has. And he is not happy with what he has found there. And so he is, through these two lessons, these two object lessons, has spoken and said that the time of the temple is done. Beloved, let us not or let us be very careful that we don't make the same kind of errors that the Jews had made. That we don't turn God's house into a house of hypocrisy. This is not a house and yes, I know the church is the people, not the building, but this is the building where the church meets. And this is not a house of entertainment. It's not to be a house of false piety. It's not a house of politics. It's a house of worship. It's a house of prayer. Let's remember that every time we come through those doors. And let's thank God for the fact that he gives us a place to worship. Jesus is going to continue, like I said, irritating the Jews and Ultimately, we'll see, and you all know this, it will cost him his life. But we are thankful, and let us be thankful, that we have the true temple, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and has dwelt among us in order that he might bring us to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Christ and how how he has come so that we do not need to go to any physical place that that, that we might worship the Lord, that we might pray, but that we are able to pray. We are able to worship wherever we gather. We pray, Father, that you would help us to rejoice as we we see that we live in a a time in redemptive history uh, in which we are greatly blessed. Let us count it as a blessing. We pray, Father, that we would learn the lessons. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.